Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, being joined by Andre Ganoella. And today we are thrilled to be joined by Neri Zilber. Now, Neri is a journalist and analyst on international affairs and culture. He focuses primarily on the Middle East. He's also a regular contributor to the Daily Beast, Foreign Policy, The Globe and Mail, and many other outlets. He is an adjunct fellow of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and an advisor to the Israel Policy Forum, where he hosts the fantastic Israel Policy Pod. Uh, I'm a listener myself. And so, Neri, thank you very much for joining us today. There's a lot to talk about, uh, particularly what's happening in Israel and also Israel's relationship uh, around the world. So thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure, Ryan and Andre. Uh, thank you for that very kind introduction. Definitely, definitely. So there's been some news that came out of Israeli domestic politics recently. So uh, for those folks who may be familiar with Israeli politics, we had uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, leader of the Likud party, which is the right wing party. He was prime minister for around a decade or so. Uh, very synonymous, a name very synonymous with Israeli politics. Uh, last year, though, and over the past couple of years, actually, there have been around four parliamentary elections, many of which have ended in a deadlock. Uh, Netanyahu was caretaker prime minister. And then uh, la- a- about a year ago, there was this coalition led by the current Israeli prime minister, Naftali Bennett, and foreign minister Yair Lapid, who essentially formed a coalition of uh, uh, sort of dissimilarly minded partners uh, to get that sort of bare majority to oust Netanyahu. However, last week, there was the announcement that they were going to de- dissolve the Knesset, and now there's going to be a fifth round of general elections. So why, are, why is Israel going to have this fifth round of uh, elections, the fifth election in less than four years? Why are there so many elections? <laughs> Right. Well, I think even uh, the average Israeli citizen wants an answer to that <laughs> very, very uh, maddening question. Uh, look, there's uh, the big picture answer and the more immediate answer uh, as to what happened with this particular coalition government. The bigger picture answer is that Israel fundamentally is a very divided country and still is. Uh, this might be familiar to some of your listeners, but it's almost 50-50, sometimes 51-49, depends who's counting but really a highly divided country, primarily on one issue, and that is Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, the long-serving prime minister, as you, as you mentioned, and people that are for him to uh, either remain prime minister, as was the case, or return to be prime minister now, uh, and people adamantly opposed to Bibi Netanyahu and uh, were uh, on a mission to topple him and to remove him from power. Um, and there's a wide variety of reasons for why there's uh, this massive opposition that rose up against Bibi uh, has to do with his ongoing corruption trial. He's on trial uh, in Jerusalem District Court for a variety of corruption charges, uh, and also just his overall political style. Uh, so a lot of his erstwhile partners, uh, even from his own Likud party, even from the Israeli right, uh, defected in recent years and uh, went to the anti-Bibi camp uh, in order to to get rid of him. And so that's the bigger picture question. And it really, Israeli politics still revolves around the person of Bibi Netanyahu. And now he's uh, now in this fifth election, he's very much trying to, to stage a comeback. Um, and the more immediate answer to your question, why all these elections is that under Israel's 
uh, parliamentary system, uh, Bibi, going back to the first election in the spring of 2019, just wasn't able to win an outright parliamentary majority. And he, uh, and along with his partners on the on the right, uh, including the ultra-Orthodox religious parties and the far-right pro-settler parties, he has to cobble together a, a governing coalition. Um, he was just not able to, to gain a parliamentary majority. So the first time he wasn't able to, uh, but on the flip side, the anti-BB camp wasn't able, at least initially, to cobble together a governing coalition on its own. So you had one round basically deadlocked, a second round deadlocked, third round, there was some solution, but it was short-lived. And then a fourth round last year, which ultimately yielded this uh, very diverse, as you said, coalition spanning from the pro-peace left-wing parties like labor and the uh, pro-settler right-wing parties like the party of uh, the outgoing prime minister Naftali Bennett and centrist, and even for the first time in Israeli history, uh, an Arab-Israeli party. Uh, So Arab-Israelis make up 20% of the Israeli citizenry. So the first time ever they joined in national politics and part of a governing coalition. And this coalition that toppled Bibi a year ago held for a year uh, until, like you said, last week, uh, in which case the, the, the government essentially collapsed. Uh, they dissolved parliament and triggered another election. Well, thank you for that uh, kind of quick and dirty run through what's happened. Uh, but I do want to go a bit deeper and kind of get a better understanding of Israel's political landscape. And so, you know, Neri, you, you did mention uh, the parties, kind of the, the, this coalition. But before we kind of get deeper on the coalition, what is Israel's kind of political construction? Like, what are the major parties and the players? And what are these platforms? You talked about kind of pro-settlement. You talked about, you know, centrists. And we also have these Arab parties. What are the relationships between all of these parties? So basically, under Israel's parliamentary system, you have a wide array of various parties, some uh, very niche parties. Uh, who represent various segments of Israeli society. So, for instance, you have, uh, like I said, left-wing parties. So that's historically uh, the Labor Party, and you have uh, another party to the left of Labor, Merits, and they're historically uh, for pro, uh, pro-peace pro agreements with the Palestinians. Uh, they're in much in favor of a two-state solution. Uh, that, uh, not, a, not a shock to hear, uh, that has kind of gone out of favor in recent years. And so you've seen the Israeli left actually uh, lose a lot of its, a lot of its support. Uh, and it used to essentially run the country uh, basically 20, 30, 40 years ago. So you have left-wing parties. Uh, you have a, a wide array of centrist parties that are, uh, you know, they might support a peace deal with the Palestinians, uh, but they're maybe a bit more pragmatic about it uh, and, and less ideological about it. Uh, and they're kind of situated in the center of the map. Um, you know, you have kind of center-left parties, center-right parties, but really in the middle of of uh, the political spectrum. And then you have parties like Bibi Netanyahu's Likud party that are staunchly uh, right-wing. Uh, they're adamantly opposed to the creation of a Palestinian state. Among other issues, uh, they've had a long-standing uh, alliance with other right-wing parties, uh, even to the right of them. So you have kind of far-right parties that represent really the hardcore of the settler movement, uh, the Israelis living in the West Bank. Uh, so they're even to the right of Bibi Netanyahu's Likud. Then you have uh, two parties representing the ultra-Orthodox segment of the Israeli public, uh, you know, very religious, very pious, uh, very uh, sectoral party. So they are really, um, their, their bread and butter really is basically to extract subsidies from the government for 
their, their synagogues and their religious seminaries and the like, and they really just want to be left alone uh, to, to live their very uh, ultra-Orthodox religious life. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of the back of the envelope, uh, wide array of political parties. And you also have, by the way, uh, two parties rep- representing the Arab-Israeli uh, citizenry in Israel, about 20% of the public. Uh, and so you have, uh, like I said, for the first time, an Islamist Arab-Israeli party that chose to uh, to join a ruling coalition in Israel. And then you had their competitors that are a lot more, let's say, um, still tied to the Palestinian cause uh, and, the, and the national identity of Arab Israelis as Palestinians. Um, so that's the long and the short of it. And, and really, it's a very fluid situation. So parties come, parties go. Uh, parties gain in strength, parties lose strength. Uh, it's a very fluid situation. People, uh, you know, various parliamentarians might be in one party one day and then they'll, they'll rebel and defect to another party. Uh, a new party will be created one day. And then uh, after an election or two, they'll, they'll kind of disappear from the political map. So it's really fluid, really, uh, really complex. Uh, but really the, the core of the maybe the trouble with the Israeli political system is that in order to build a governing coalition, you need to cobble together all these various disparate parties. And so one of them, you know, might be pulling in one direction, another one will be pulling in another direction. It's not a real recipe for political stability here. So who's actually in uh, the coalition? I mean, how does that, and what does that power sharing agreement actually look like? Was it a successful coalition? So, right. So the outgoing government that was in power now for the past year, uh, that just uh, essentially was, uh, was toppled or, or toppled itself, uh, was really the most diverse in Israeli history. So you had about eight parties, all told, uh, as part of this governing coalition, really spanning the gamut. So you had, you know, left-wingers and right-wingers and centrists, and like I said, Arab-Israelis, all in one coalition. and it, uh, it managed to cobble together a very slim, uh, even a one-seat majority in, in parliament. So uh, it, the back, its back was against the wall from the beginning, but it actually was able to, to govern for the past year and, and uh, I guess, uh, exceeded expectations, or at least some analysts' expectations in terms of its longevity uh, and staying power, uh, really until the last several weeks. And uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't all smooth sailing. Uh, far from it, uh, but they did manage to to put aside a lot of their differences um, for the greater good, for you know to, to extract Israel from this kind of endless loop of, of elections. Uh, they were able, uh, this might have been their primary objective, to remove Bibi Netanyahu from the prime minister's office. So Bibi uh, was in opposition as opposition leader for the past year, something he's uh, very much not used to, and uh, and so they they held together. The government did. For the past year, uh, but really the the internal contradictions became a bit too much, uh, and you had various defections, primarily from uh, the outgoing prime minister Naftali Bennett's own right wing party. Uh, you had uh, various uh, parliamentarians from his own party defecting to the opposition, and that was really the death knell uh, over the past few months. And it became somewhat untenable uh, for for the prime minister himself, for the government, and really for the coalition once it. Uh, once it lost its parliamentary majority. So Neri, I mean, just a quick anecdote. The last time I was in Israel a few years ago, I was, you know, talking with this Israeli professor who was, you know, talking about the benefits of Israel's parliamentary system. And so I just think kind of looking back, I know, I, I don't know if he still has the same views, 
uh, just given kind of the instability that we've seen in, in recent years. But so looking kind of to how this coalition functioned, of course, you mentioned that, you know, that we of uh, surprising longevity. You know, I would agree with that. Uh, BB was removed. That's, I would say, a success for in their minds. But what about any legislative successes? Were there, were there any, was there any ability to pass meaningful legislation when you have such a broad coalition with such varying kind of ideologies and missions? So it's a great question. Uh, really, their, their approach from the very beginning was to uh, focus more on domestic issues. So more, let's say, economic issues, civil affairs, you know, the relationship between religion and state and not delve too deeply into the more controversial or ideological issues like the Palestinian conflict, like settlements in the West Bank. And so they tried to kind of shelve that uh, and for the most part succeeded uh, and really focus on more consensual issues. They like to say that, you know, we, we all agree on 80% of the issues and the 20% that we don't agree on uh, we'll leave to the side and, and we'll kind of try to, uh, to elide those issues and, and to avoid those issues. Uh, you know, I would say it's probably uh, more than 20% that uh, differentiated between the various parties, but they did put aside a lot of their differences. And you had, uh, you know, right-wing parties voting for legislation that was kind of more left-wing, that was very difficult for them. And you had a lot of left-wing parties voting for more kind of nationalist and right-wing legislation that was very difficult for them. Uh, and so they, they did make a, a, a good effort in that regard to, to just really focus on more domestic issues. So they passed a state budget last fall uh, because of the political turmoil. Uh, Israel hadn't had a state budget in about three years. Uh, and so that was a big, a big step in terms of just economic stability uh, and, and the functioning, the basic functioning of government. Uh, they were able to uh, at least begin to push forward some reforms in terms of, uh, let's say, economic policy and uh, trying to lower the high cost of living in Israel, uh, which let's say, met, was met with, uh, with varying success. Uh, some of the parties were, were attempting to uh, institute some reforms in terms of the, the power of the ultra-Orthodox over uh, you know, religious life in Israel, so things like kosher laws and uh, civil marriages, again, uh, with, with limited success, but they, they did attempt uh, to address those types of issues. Um, and really, they left aside, like I said, more controversial issues having to do with say, you know, West Bank settlements or, uh, or the Palestinian conflict. So what really intrigued me was the power sharing agreement between uh, the two prime ministers, essentially, right? Bennett and Lapid. Uh, usually I feel like when you have a plan where one guy is going to be prime minister for one year and then he's going to voluntarily step down and the other guy is going to take over, I feel like it usually doesn't work. But I guess in this situation, Bennett has said he's actually going to step down. He's not going to run in the upcoming elections. Lapid is going to take over. Why do you think that is? Like, what is motivating Bennett's, I guess, line of thinking in actually stepping down after being prime minister for only a year? To take it to the beginning of, of this deal, and you're, you're right, it is a very odd deal that you have, uh, you know, a proper prime minister and then an alternate prime minister. Uh, by the way, this wasn't an invention by Bennett and Lapid. This uh, goes back the year prior to Netanyahu and uh, the current defense minister, Benny Gantz. I'll spare your listeners uh, the details, but uh, it's a very Israeli uh, arrangement, let's say, uh, because there's no constitution here. Uh, so a lot of the laws and the, the basic system and structure of government, it's like Plato. 
Uh, so the politicians have uh, have been playing with the Play-Doh uh, for a number of years now in an attempt to at least uh, find a modicum of stability and a way forward through this uh, endless election cycles. So a year ago, uh, Lapid made Bennett uh, kind of a godfather offer, an offer Bennett really couldn't refuse. Uh, and so Bennett, with only really a handful of seats that he won uh, for his party uh, coming out of the last election last year, uh, was offered by Lapid, who won a lot more seats than Bennett, about three times more seats. Uh, he, Bennett was offered the prime ministership by Lapid, which uh, in terms of, I think, global politics might be unprecedented. Uh, this kind of, uh, I guess, leading political figure that won a lot more seats, offering the top post in the country to someone who won a lot less seats. Uh, and Bennett, after thinking about it for a little while, uh, agreed. And so Bennett according to the deal, was going to go first in this power-sharing agreement. He was going to serve uh, the first half of the government's term, and then he would rotate out and allow Lapid to uh, become prime minister for the second half of the government's term. Uh, obviously, that hasn't come to pass. And so because the government was toppled early uh, or dissolved itself early uh, just this past week, uh, Bennett stayed true to his word, and the relationship with Lapid is actually... Uh, uh, quite good. Uh, they seem to be uh, still on very friendly terms, and there's a lot of trust there, and that's quite important. And so Le Bennett, according to the terms of his deal with Lapid, uh, stepped down. He stepped down, and uh, Lapid, as of I think yesterday, or I guess Thursday, uh, whenever this this podcast is going to air, uh, Lapid has officially become Israeli prime minister, and Bennett has become alternate prime minister. And, and like you said, uh, Bennett uh, announced that he's not going to run this upcoming election. Uh, that's a whole different story. Uh, uh, Bennett informing this government and breaking with Netanyahu and really breaking with the Israeli right uh, has, has lost a lot of his support. And so it was an open question whether Bennett even had a political future, uh, you know, if and when Israel was going to go to another election, which it is now. So we have this upcoming election, and uh, I'm curious what are the major issues that are going to be kind of you know, touted across the country in order to kind of have this coalition form. Do you think that, you know, realistically, it's just kind of just a, a jockeying within the Knesset to put together, you know, some sort of coalition moving forward? Or, are you know, do they go around the country to try to, you know, beef up their support? And if so, what are the major issues? Is it, you know, the post-COVID economy? Is it, you know, the West Bank and settlements? Is it Iran? Is it Palestinian issues? What are the major topics in Israeli politics today? So I'd say that there are, are two big issues and then kind of smaller issues below them. Um, the big issue, number one, still, Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, yes or no. So really, uh, the motivating factor, I think, for a lot of uh, the outgoing coalition, and a lot of, let's say, center, center-left, liberal Israel, is to deny Netanyahu a return to the prime minister's office and a return to power. That's uh, goal number one, and that, that hasn't changed, not in uh, over the past uh, four elections since 2019. So that's really uh, the, the main animating impulse for a lot of, a lot of the politicians and a lot of the voters um, you know, that, are, that are not in Netanyahu's base of support, not in Netanyahu's camp. Uh, and then the second issue stemming from this, this recent government is uh, Arab Israelis, yes or no. So whether Arab Israelis uh, can, should, whether it's uh, desirable to have them play a role in national politics to be part of a governing coalition. And you've seen 
a major effort by Netanyahu and his allies on the Israeli right uh, to delegitimize the the Arab-Israeli party that was part of this outgoing coalition uh, to essentially delegitimize uh, Arab-Israeli participation in, in a governing coalition. You know, Bibi has called them everything from Muslim brothers to terrorist supporters to anti-Semites to anti-Zionists uh, and everything beyond that. Um, really just a, a campaign of incitement against um, the Arab-Israeli political parties uh, because Netanyahu knows that the Arab-Israeli political parties could actually make or break him. And so he doesn't want to make the same mistake that he made last year, where he actually tried to court these very same parties. Uh, nobody said that Netanyahu or Israeli politics uh, was, uh, was consistent or not without hypocrisy. Uh, it's Israeli politics and Bibi are, are highly inconsistent and very hypocritical. Um, doesn't seem to, to bother Netanyahu's supporters, but that's a, a different topic. Uh, so he's really trying to de- delegitimize the, the role of Arab Israelis and trying to appeal to the Israeli Jewish public saying, you know, look, my opponents don't have a coalition. They don't have a government without the Arab Israelis. And you don't want to repeat of what we just saw over the past year, where you had essentially an Israeli government beholden, these are Netanyahu's words, to the Arabs. Uh, really just a you know, dog whistle uh, campaign of incitement. Um, you know, I don't really know how to describe it in any other terms. So those, I think, are the two big issues. Uh, and it remains to be seen whether that uh, Netanyahu's campaign against uh, the Arab-Israeli uh, political parties in public, really, um, will, will gain traction amongst, let's say, more mainstream Israeli voters. Uh, and then the other issues, really, uh, is the high cost of living in Israel. This has been an issue now for many years, but obviously has not improved given uh, the state of the global economy and inflation and uh, just the overall difficulty in, uh, in essentially you know, paying rent, buying groceries, making a living in Israel. Uh, and then you know, maybe other issues like Iran, security, uh, and the like, but I would put those maybe you know, fourth, fifth, and sixth. When we talk about Netanyahu's current popularity, what, what does it look like right now? You mentioned a lot of these dog whistles and so on, but... Uh... What's the actual likelihood that Netanyahu actually manages to successfully uh, stage a comeback? Uh, is it very likely or is it, say, less likely than his chances were of winning the last election when he was a prime minister? So uh, it's a great question. Uh, the short answer is nobody knows. Uh, this campaign, I think, even compared to what we've seen over the past few years, I think will be really um, really bumpy, really rocky, really nasty in many respects, no holds barred campaign. Uh, also a very long campaign. So election day is November 1st. So it's, I think, over four months away. So uh, it'll be, it'll be uh, long, brutish, and, uh, and difficult. And a lot of things can change between now and election day. Uh, look, according to the polls, it's going to be a really close run affair again. Uh, the margins in Israeli politics are, are very fine. You know, one or two seats in either direction can can make or break uh, a government, can make or break an election. So it, it'll still be quite close. Uh, but I, the consensus isn't is that Bibi isn't quite there yet. That uh, he still doesn't seem to have enough support. Again, with his Likud party and his kind of right wing and ultra orthodox allies to cobble together uh, a parliamentary majority and to put together a a government. 
So it's going to be close, uh, but your point is well taken in the sense that it's the first time, uh, I think, in 13 years that Bibi doesn't have the advantage of incumbency, that he's not the sitting prime minister going into an election. Uh, the, the new prime minister in Israel is, is Yari Lapid, who rotated in, like I said. And so, you know, that may be an advantage to Lapid and the anti-Netanyahu camp, the fact that they actually hold the prime ministership and it's, um, you know, a very prominent position, a very influential position, uh, also a very risky position if things um, don't go according to plan. Uh, but Netanyahu is an unfamiliar position in a sense that he, he's running uh, as, as the insurgent, that he's trying to unseat the the recent and previous government. And so uh, if history has shown us anything, it's that um, while Prime Minister Netanyahu is, um, um, let's say, problematic on, on certain levels in terms of his uh, public rhetoric and, and even you know in terms of a lot of his policies, uh, opposition leader Netanyahu uh, has no limits and he is willing and likely to do and say anything he feels necessary in order to win. So Nair, as we look to this upcoming election in November, of course, I mean, it's largely Bibi versus Lapid, um, but are there any other politicians to look out for? I mean, you know, in the kind of the early days of looking of, you know, building coalitions, there's, you know, Benny Gantz and, you know, many other politicians who are trying to jockey for uh, coalition construction. Um, should we really just be looking at Bibi and Lapid or are there others, maybe dark horses that you think we should look out for? So I think uh, Benny Gantz, so the, the current defense minister that you mentioned, uh, the former uh, Israeli military chief um, for uh, many, a few years ago uh, before he entered politics, um, he's an interesting case. He's a centrist. Uh, he actually ran with Lapid during the first three campaigns. Um, they actually entered into an alliance, and, and Gantz was the, uh, the sole candidate for prime minister, actually, uh, in the anti-Netanyahu camp. Um, so Gantz himself lost a lot of support because uh, after election number three, he broke uh, his core promise and actually uh, cut a deal with Bibi and, and formed a government with Bibi and served under Bibi. Uh, and the electorate actually punished him for that. You know, the anti-Netanyahu voting public and the center or center left uh, punished Gantz for it. Uh, so he lost a lot of support, but he, he staged a bit of a comeback um, after the election last year, the fourth election. and. I'm not saying that he can make up the numbers vis-a-vis Lapid, but there may be a scenario where if Bibi doesn't win a majority, that other options open up and that you may see a situation after election day, after November 1st, where Gantz actually emerges as some kind of compromise candidate uh, in between you know, various kind of uh, parties and sectors that, okay, you know, Netanyahu may not have won, but maybe there's a deal to be had where Gantz, uh, again, goes, goes first as prime minister and Bibi goes second. And that way, uh, you know, you keep out maybe Lapid and maybe some of the left-wing parties and uh, maybe a deal will be cut that way. Uh, but again, it's, it's a bit premature to, to speculate, but that, I think that is a possible scenario. So it's not, uh, again, it's a parliamentary system. It's not uh, a straight horse race between Netanyahu and Lapid. Um, even though the, they are, you know, the two dominant candidates. Uh, again, you just had a, a prime minister in Israel that controlled, I think, six seats in parliament out of 120. So again, yeah, like I said, Israeli politics is like Plato. Uh, anything is possible. So I, I guess uh, 
why was the Lapid Bennett coalition? I mean, so it was incredibly diverse, right? Uh, which can certainly be applauded in terms of that political science manner, right? Like you've managed to cobble together just this incredible coalition, but uh, what does its inability to stay together signal about Israeli politics uh, and the reality of just broad inclusion in Israeli politics? Of course, we have very dynamic ethnic and religious groups in Israel, as we all know. Uh, Does it forebode anything? Um, Look, they even called it, the outgoing government even called it uh, a grand experiment. Um, a grand experiment, again, not only in Israeli terms, but uh, they like to talk about it in global terms, where you had this wide coalition coming together uh, and putting aside, like I said, you know, a lot of their real differences uh, and trying to govern for, for the greater good. And so in an era of increasing polarization all over the world, uh, this was seen as, as an antidote. You know, the experiment in Israel over the past year was seen as an antidote. Again, not only in terms of the makeup of the government, not even in terms of just the policies they pursued, but just in terms of the tone and style of, of how they conducted themselves. You know, with a lot of uh, collegiality, cooperation, uh, you know, you may not agree with uh, the minister sitting to your right uh, or the minister sitting to your left, uh, but you at least treated them with respect. Um, and that, I think, uh, you know, that, that thesis right, that the Israeli public, and again, you could extrapolate out to beyond Israel, but whether a voting public will actually reward that type of politics, or on the flip side, whether they actually, uh, I guess, more or less of the public reverts to, I guess, more hardline, I guess, ideological politics. I think that is the core, the core test uh, of this upcoming election, whether really, you know, this different style of politics will be rewarded uh, at the ballot box. And I don't think anybody has a really good answer for that. Uh, as we know, the politics of fear, um, you know, it, it has a lot of buyers, has a lot of buyers and resonates. Uh, and so, you know, the, the outgoing government and the senior officials and people in it that I've spoken to um, are still highly hopeful and optimistic that the Israeli public, when push comes to shove, will actually appreciate what has gone on here over the past year. Um, Again, I'm, I'm maybe not as uh, optimistic as they are. Uh, I think, you know, um, like you said, the, the deep divisions in Israeli society are, are there. They're longstanding. They're deep-rooted. Um, again, it's a numbers game. And hopefully more, more people than not uh, actually see, see the good um, that, that did go on here over the past year with this, with this grand experiment. Neri, before we shift gears uh, to look at Israel's relationship with the world, I do want to ask about the Israeli public and its kind of perceptions and opinions on government. Because given kind of all the chaos and elections, is there you know mass disillusionment with Knesset, with kind of government officials? Or is there maybe an understanding that because of kind of the divides that this is almost inevitable? No, no, there, there's, a, there's massive disillusionment. Uh, I think even anger. People are just fed up with the fact that the, the politicians uh, can't seem to get their act together. Now, uh, when you talk to you know the average Israelis uh, and you try to explain that there are reasons for what has gone on here over the past year and the collapse of the government and and the behavior really of Netanyahu and the Likud and the opposition and uh, you know really kind of irresponsible behavior and and um, like I said you know effectively pure incitement. Uh, against uh, the outgoing Prime Minister Bennett and and people who who deigned 
to break with Netanyahu. Um, you know, it, I don't know if the average Israeli actually internalizes the nuances of Israeli politics. Uh, you know, this podcast, is, I think, is a testament to the fact that uh, it's quite complicated. And so the average Israeli, uh, you know, doesn't follow it as closely as, let's say, I do, because I get paid to follow it very closely. Uh, and so they're just fed up with the entire system. They're fed up with all the politicians. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, Israelis will, will go out and vote. Um, a large uh, percentage of Israelis do vote in elections, uh, unlike, unlike other countries. And so it just depends, you know, if they're convinced over the course of the next four months uh, to reward this party or that party uh, with their vote and, and kind of which way the wind, the wind is blowing. But, uh, but no, you know, the Israelis are, are somewhat embarrassed by the fact that Israel is number one in the world for uh, the, the number of elections it holds uh, every few months and every few years. What, what role does media play in all of this, right? Is, the, is there a similar sort of news media landscape uh, similar to what the United States has with CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and so on? Uh, does Israel mimic that? And does that play a big role in how these elections occur? Yeah, I mean, the Israeli media plays a, a big role. Uh, it's a very um, vibrant, crowded, uh, boisterous uh, media ecosystem here. Uh, you know, the Israeli right, again, this shouldn't come as a surprise to, to you and the listeners, uh, the Israeli right is adamant that the media here is left-wing and part of a, a deep state conspiracy to, to unseat the right. Uh, the, you know, Bibi Netanyahu himself claims that the media, along with the, the judicial system and the police and the attorney general and everyone else is, is out to get him and, and is a big reason for uh, the criminal indictments and the trial uh, that he's currently going through. Uh, and so, you know, there's a major attack, and has been for years now, that the, the Israeli media is left-wing, that they're in the pocket of the left. And so you've seen, especially in recent years, this kind of bending over backwards, this, this overcorrection by the Israeli media to try to prove to at least the Israeli right that they're not left-wing, that, that we're, we're, we're making an effort to be, you know, overly objective, I, I, again, my opinion. And so I think uh, in many cases, Israeli public is is badly served, shall we put, by the fact that it's, you know, it's kind of both sidesism. It's like, well, you know, the, the Knesset was just dissolved and the government was toppled and we're going to elections, uh, but look at all these politicians. Um, whereas I think the real, the real explanation for why we got here is, uh, you know, kind of pure cynicism and nihilism by the Netanyahu-led opposition. Um, so again, not unique to Israel, but you do see, uh, you know, a major attack by, I guess, kind of these startup uh, and social media-infused right-wing, uh, I don't even want to call them media voices, but just kind of public voices, uh, really egged on and in some cases kind of funded by pro-Netanyahu supporters and groups uh, to impact the public debate. And so uh, it does have an impact on, on the Israeli public. And uh, I think, like, in, again, not to belabor the point, but in many other places, uh, you know, the, the, average, the average consumer of the news kind of tunes out and says, well, uh, they're all the same. Uh, nothing, nothing is different. Nothing really matters. Uh, and so they tune out. It's always fascinating trying to compare, you know, media landscapes in other countries. Um, but you know, it, again, I think it, it's certainly a huge problem that the United States is dealing with. And it's interesting to kind of look at how Israel is dealing with it itself. Um, as I said, let's shift gears uh, to international relations. And so with the prospect of Netanyahu making a potential comeback, I mean, he's 
largely been seen as one of the kind of the great statesmen um, in, in Israel, in Israel's history. Um, and so with the challenges kind of in the Middle East, but also around the world, I mean, Israelis, I'm sure, had a different view of Bennett and Lapid than they did of Netanyahu. And so what will Lapid do kind of over the next handful of months in order to boost his image on the world stage? Because, I mean, it's, it's a hard job. It's, it's very important to kind of showcase Israel and the Israeli people in a positive light on the world stage and also ensuring that, you know, they look strong and they, you know, push back against adversaries abroad. What is kind of what one, what is, you know, Lapid's kind of status right now uh, as far as kind of global, um, you know, prowess and um, where, where does he need to go? I think it's remarkable how little changed over the past year once uh, this great statesman, Bibi Netanyahu, in, in his own mind, uh, exited the stage and how, uh, you know, a lot of the relationships that Israel cultivated with really important states, you know, especially in, in the Gulf, like the UAE, Bahrain, even Saudi Arabia to a certain extent, and Jordan and Egypt, um, and states in Europe, and even uh, Washington, um, how much all those relationships actually strengthened and grew closer uh, after Netanyahu left the prime minister's office. And so I think, you know, if you're looking at it objectively as, as an Israeli uh, citizen, uh, you should draw the conclusion that, uh, you know, the Israeli prime minister, it's, it's uh, the most important job in the country, arguably one of the most difficult jobs in the world. Uh, and yet Israel uh, is not, or Israel is bigger, shall we say, than just one man uh, and one person. And that there was life after Netanyahu, uh, the sun still rose over, over Tel Aviv uh, after he, he left the stage and, and went into opposition. And so I think objectively, uh, you, you'd like to see the Israeli public actually uh, appreciate what has gone on over the past year, even someone like Bennett, um, really kind of untested internationally. Um, and with not that much uh, at least public support behind him, um, was embraced warmly by leaders all around the world. Um, even at one point a few months ago was brokering or trying to broker peace between uh, Putin and Zelensky. Um, again, that's a whole separate issue. But, uh, but it was a fact. You know, he, he flew to Moscow. He flew to uh, various European capitals. Uh, you know, he flew to Cairo. He flew to... Uh, the Emirates, and, uh, and that's just Bennett. Uh, and Lapita's foreign minister also uh, really burnished his credentials uh, on the global stage. And again, I think going back to, to how we started this conversation, if you're a supporter of Netanyahu, you say, well, you know, they ruined Israel's international standing. Again, Bibi has said this verbatim, even though objectively there's, there's no evidence to that at all. Um, you know, they undermined Israel's international standing. Israel's international international standing has never been lower. Um, so again, if you support Netanyahu, you, you went through that prism. If you oppose Netanyahu, uh, I think, again, objectively, uh, you say Israel's international standing has actually improved uh, over the past year. And so, you know, to go to the second part of your question, uh, Lapid will, will try to keep that going. And, uh, and, you know, President Biden is supposed to be here, I think, in, in a week and a half. And so that will be a big moment uh, for Lapid as prime minister to, to welcome the, Israel, the, the American president. Um, always a big event in Israel, uh, no matter who the U.S. president is and no matter who the Israeli prime minister is. Uh, Israelis just want to be uh, embraced and loved, especially by uh, their close American ally. And so that's a big, big moment, I think, 
uh, Lapide's first international trip uh, uh, is to visit Emmanuel Macron in Paris. Uh, and so I think Lapide, you know, all of that is, is kind of good news. On the flip side, if there is a security crisis, um, say another wave of terror attacks or an escalation vis-a-vis Iran uh, or something that we can't even uh, imagine at the present moment, uh, the buck stops with him because he is now the prime minister and every, all eyes will be on him. Uh, speaking of President Biden and that alliance, uh, I, I do recall during those first few months of President Biden's term, uh, it was a bit rockier than usual with uh, the Netanyahu government. But right now, what does the U.S.-Israeli relationship look like with these political leaders? I mean, quite close, quite close. It was even close under Bennett, and that that wasn't a given, you know, given the fact that it's a, a Democratic president and a uh, a pro-settler prime minister, you know, Naftali Bennett used to be the head of the, the uh, settler uh, political umbrella group in the West Bank. Uh, so that wasn't a given, uh, but Bennett uh, was warmly embraced by the Biden administration. I think uh, the thinking was that uh, anybody but Bibi uh, was, was better news for, for Washington and better news for the Democratic Party. Uh, there was no love lost between the Democrats and Bibi Netanyahu going back to uh, Bibi's very shoddy treatment of President Obama uh, way back when, uh, obviously infamously uh, went behind Obama's back and gave uh, an address to Congress with uh, Republican help and support against the Iran nuclear deal. So uh, there was no love lost with Netanyahu. And, and once Netanyahu uh, was, was toppled, uh, the U.S. government, the Biden administration, did their utmost to help support the the Bennett Lapide government, you know, they wouldn't say it outright, uh, but they really handled uh, this this recent government in Israel with kid gloves. Um, didn't really press them on too many issues, uh, especially vis-a-vis uh, say things like settlement construction or or the Palestinian issue, uh, and even you know the major differences between Jerusalem and Washington over the Iran nuclear deal were handled by both sides. Um, fairly amicably and, and for the most part, with a few exceptions behind closed doors. Uh, so there was a great effort by the Biden people and also by Ben Lapid people uh, to, to improve the relationship. And, and again, that, that's still ongoing. And I think even more so now that Lapid is, is both prime minister in Israel, uh, the first, shall we say, center, center-left Israeli prime minister in, I think, 14 years. So not a minor point. Um, and obviously, that's something that uh, Democrats, especially, would like to see continue. Uh, I don't think I'm, I'm speaking out of school when I say that. Uh, and not only is it a, a center-left Israeli prime minister, it's an Israeli center-left prime minister in the middle of an election campaign against Bibi Netanyahu. And so, I think you're going to see a very warm embrace by President Biden when he comes here to visit. Uh, again, with the caveat that uh, Biden is also expected to meet with Bibi Netanyahu as the opposition leader to at least put forward a modicum of, of balance and not to, uh, not to have people allege that the Americans are trying to, uh, to put their thumb on the scales of, of Israeli democracy, such as it is. Yeah, and we'll see kind of how that balance is struck. Um, and so with Biden coming to Israel, what sort of issues do you think the, the Lapid government will try to push during his visit? Of course, you know, as you said, you know, he's running you know, in, in these campaigns. And so there are certainly some issues that he's going to want to emphasize during this meeting, because I'm sure the entire Israeli public is going to be paying very close attention to this, this bilateral meeting. Yeah, it's going to be wall-to-wall coverage. Uh, 
from the moment Biden lands at Ben Gurion Airport uh, to the moment he leaves, it's going to be uh, covered uh, every minute of, of, I think, day and a half that he's here. Uh, she also mentioned Biden is supposed to meet with uh, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in Bethlehem uh, one of the uh, the second afternoon before he leaves. Uh, look, I think the the expectations for this presidential visit are are quite low. Uh, again, I think that's that's the right way to uh, to frame it. Nobody's expecting like a major policy breakthrough. I think uh, first and foremost. Uh, there's going to be kind of a reaffirmation of uh, what they call the the strong and enduring and unbreakable you know bond between Israel and the U.S. and you know American guarantees for Israeli security and and so on and so forth. So that's going to be kind of the feel good messaging and and the mere presence of Biden here will uh, will hopefully convey that message. Uh, and in terms of policy, I think uh, Iran will be front and center, uh, at least in the public remarks. Uh, Again, nobody knows if a, a new nuclear deal with Iran will actually be concluded. Uh, chances are that it won't, despite uh, the talks having just been resumed in, in Qatar. But, uh, but that's also an issue that the Israelis and Americans want to at least uh, deal with and at least manage the fallout if there's no deal. Um, and also the fallout if there is a deal, but likely no deal. Uh, so the Iran issue will be front and center. Um, I'm sure Biden will say... Uh, maybe some of the right things with regard to the Palestinian issue and uh, the American support for, for a future Palestinian state. Uh, but I wouldn't maybe uh, overdetermine that. I think the Biden people are also aware that uh, there's an election on and that they don't want to kind of press Lapid into, into a difficult corner where Bibi can attack uh, uh, Lapid for, for acquiescing to, you know, American demands to create a Palestinian state, uh, which are not likely to happen anytime soon anyway. Uh, so I think the Iran issue, the Palestinian issue, um, security ties, so air defenses, uh, and then in the context really of Biden's uh, uh, next trip after Israel and the West Bank to Saudi Arabia. And so where Israel fits in in kind of this new regional security architecture, I think will be a major point of emphasis for, for Biden, uh, you know, maybe steps uh, that may be facilitated by the Americans. Um, you know, to, to increase normalization, normalizing ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia. So I think that'll also be a, a, a major agenda item uh, for Biden when he's here. So, so on that note about normalizing uh, relations with Arab states, uh, has there been a sea change? I mean, we saw a lot of that uh, normalization initiate under the Trump administration. Are we seeing it intensify? Very much so. Very much so. Uh, I don't know if, if anybody could have predicted when the Abraham Accords, these kind of accords between Israel and uh, UAE, Bahrain, uh, Morocco, and to a lesser extent, Sudan, uh, were signed, what was it, in the fall of 2020 under the Trump administration, that uh, less than two years later, we would have Israel part of CENTCOM uh, and Israel concluding defense treaties with Bahrain and Morocco and real talk about a regional kind of air defense system and cooperation between Israel and, and uh, the Gulf Arab states and Egypt and Jordan. And so these are real things. These are real things on top of, uh, you know, deepening and, and widening economic ties. Uh, you know, you've seen a free trade deal concluded just a few weeks ago between Israel and the United Arab Emirates uh, and, and also tourism. Uh, you know, Israelis by the thousands traveled to the UAE. Uh, 
for, for business and also just pleasure. So uh, these are real things. And so uh, again, less than two years later, uh, it's only it's only deepening and widening and growing. And uh, and now Saudi Saudi Arabia is viewed as as the next big prize. Uh, that's not likely to, to happen soon, uh, but there are steps in that direction that that are likely to be announced uh, in the coming weeks, uh, precisely due to Biden's trip to the region. Absolutely. Well, I think there's definitely reason to have optimism kind of looking to the future. And so, uh, Neri, this has been really a fantastic conversation. I want to thank you for joining us today. And for all of you listening, uh, make sure to check out Neri's fabulous work uh, and all the different kind of bylines that I mentioned. He's also a great follow on Twitter at Neri Zilber. Um, and be sure to listen to him on the Israel Policy Pod. Thank you, Neri, so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Ryan and Andre. Take care.